All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? It is great to see you on this Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for making this time today part of your weekend plan. And I love, even throughout the service today, we've spent some focused time being able to thank and appreciate those who have given their lives for the freedom that we have to do what we're doing right now, to gather together and, and lift up the name of Jesus and be preoccupied with him. For those of you that are here in the worship center, you sound great. You sound so good this morning. It's so great to be able to hear you. And those of you that are joining us out in the pavilion, I bet you sound great too. And those of you that are singing in your jammies, I bet you sound awesome as well. So it is a good thing. We're glad you're joining us in whatever format you are today. We're continuing in a study in the book of John, kind of this next set of chapters from the second half of chapter 5 through 10 called Conspiracies, Adversaries, and Unbelief. And what you're going to see today is more of that idea of as Jesus is revealing himself to be the long-expected Messiah, you're going to see people continue to respond to him later in the future, more with conspiracies, but right now, adversarially, as well as those in unbelief. And so what I want to keep reminding you of as we look at this, what was powerful, I was sharing pre-service with our, our teams today, what's been powerful for me in my study is remembering who who I am, meaning that as Jesus is addressing people, taking great care to understand who is he talking to in this moment, and when he's talking to the crowds who are just kind of wondering who he is or wondering where they can get their next free lunch, or when he's talking to the religious leaders who are literally coming after him and attacking him, I realize I'm neither of those. I am most like the disciples, the 12, who even, as you saw last week, if you were here with us, Bill did such a great job kind of wrapping up that incredibly bittersweet dialogue, but coming back to this great confession that Peter makes, where else would we go? You have the words of life. So we're going to dial in today. If you have a Bible, John chapter 7 is where we're going to be. If you have notes that either you grab from the back or you have our app, you can pull that up and be able to follow along with us today as well. And we'll dive in in just a moment. I did miss you guys last week. I was bummed to not be able to be here, but got to watch Bill's message online. He just did such a great job. And that's where we're going to continue forward. We're going to see some time has lapsed since this discussion in John chapter 6. And now we're going to pick it up later on a few maybe weeks or months later around this festival this feast of tabernacles is going to be kind of the next kind of marker john does a great job in his gospel identifying when things happen based usually on jewish festivals and so this is the feast of tabernacles is going to be what this is based around and we'll kind of even understand what was that even all about and we'll dive in a little bit together today so if you have your notes or you're uh, taking note on screen Here's what we're looking at today for our uh, now what statement. Evaluate people and circumstances with a head that is transformed by scripture and a heart that is surrendered to the spirit. Jesus is going to make a statement at the end of our passage today about judge things appropriately, judge them clearly. And this is how as followers of Jesus were to do it with a head that's transformed by scripture and a heart that's surrendered to the spirit. Number one in your notes today, Jesus demonstrated resolve, purpose, and strategy to accomplish his mission. 
Jesus demonstrated resolve, purpose, and strategy to accomplish his mission. We're in chapter 7 of John, number, or verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because, watch this, the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Don't miss that. We're going to see this pop up a couple times, but I want to encourage you, don't just read right over the like, oh yeah, that just happens. Uh, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And watch the statement, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said, had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? All right, so this sets the context of what we're going to see in chapter 7, a lot of Jesus' teaching, but this is providing a great backdrop so we understand in what way is, and in what period and in what setting is what Jesus is going to share today, and where does this happen? And so we, we see some time has lapsed. Jesus has stayed where uh, everything was going on in cha John chapter 6 was up by the Sea of Galilee, and that region was referred to as Galilee. He had stayed in that area, but now the Feast of Tabernacles is about to happen. And we'll see in a minute, this is one of three festivals that all native-born Jewish men were to attend. And by saying men, we meant also they would bring their families. So this is a huge deal. One of these pilgrimage feasts is about to come. This feast would have happened after the, the fall harvest. So on our calendars, it lands somewhere in late September to mid-October. So that's about the range of the time of year that these things are going to happen. But I want you to be careful to just, what we can often do is we can often just read over things because we know how the gospel of John continues to go. We know what's there, but we want to catch it in real time and just ask the question, if I've never heard this story before, what should be popping off the page to me? And one of those relates to the Jewish religious leaders. Remember, we can read this and just go, yeah, they're the ones who are really against Jesus so much so that they're going to push for his crucifixion. But what we can forget is they're religious leaders. The last time I looked, most religions don't encourage people to kill others, especially the Jewish faith. So we have a problem here, but we see that they weren't just angry. They weren't just frustrated. They weren't just concerned about Jesus and his teachings. They were looking for a way to kill him. And that's going to be significant today because Jesus is going to call that out. And we're going to see them deny even what their heart is longing to do. Here's the challenge then, what we have. Jesus is up north in the Galilee region, and the challenge is, is that this pilgrimage festival would demand that he would go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is this hotbed. It's the center of Jewish religion, as well as that's where all these Jewish leaders are, and they're basically waiting for him to come to their home turf. 
He's been, he was raised up in Nazareth. Galilee has been his place of primary origin. Now he's going to come into the city of Jerusalem and they're waiting for him. The challenge is though, if he doesn't go on this pilgrimage feast, he's living contrary to the law. We'll see in a minute that this was really clear that all these men were supposed to go to this event. But at the same time, if he goes premature, if he goes in such a way, there are literally men waiting there to kill him. So there's a real tension in this. And I don't want you to miss this and read right over it. There's a real kind of rock and a hard place that Jesus finds himself in. But as we surface that tension, let's understand the significance and the symbolism of this feast, uh, of, of Feast of Tabernacles, and what it really communicated to the people. While the former slaves of Egypt were still in the desert, Yahweh was telling them through Moses, his spokesperson, that they were going to celebrate, their, their future generations were going to celebrate something that they were living daily. Look at this from Leviticus chapter 23, written to those still not yet in the promised land. Talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrate this as a festival, verse 41, to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance, something you do forever for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. And watch what they were to do. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. Watch. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters, live in tabernacles, live in tents when I brought them up out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So I want you to think about this now. Try to visually kind of grasp this. Think about the city of Jerusalem, already a largely populated city in this day, in the first century. And now imagine people from all over the region, up into Galilee, maybe even from other areas, uh, even on the other side of the Mediterranean, that would come. They've been displaced, and now they're coming back for this festival. And imagine these tents... Imagine these lean-to tabernacles that are put up all over the city. This was not good for the hotel business. Nobody's staying in a hotel during the Feast of Tabernacles. They're setting up their own kind of made uh, lean-tos to remind themselves, this is how our ancestors were led by Yahweh through the desert, is they were a nomadic people. They would be in a place for a season and get up and move again. And they lived in these tents that we're just remembering. So I want you to catch the physical reality of this symbol. I want you to catch that they set these things up. They lived in them for seven days, rehearsing in their minds. This is how our ancestors lived for 40 years. This is just a seven-day reminder to us of where we come from. You might know this festival today as Sukkot's. And the funny thing is, I looked that word up, and four times I had people on the internet read it to me four different ways. So if you don't like the way I just said it, you're probably right, okay? But that's the best one I could choose from. Take a look at some of these pictures. These are modern-day Sukkots that are set up in and around the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. We can go through those a little bit at a time. Some look very, um, you know, very much kind of like we're literally laying branches on top of each other. Some look a little bit more ornate, like with pipe and drape. Take a look at the next one. This is a little bit more austere with some of the lattice fencing. And then the last one makes me laugh. I go, man, that looks like a banquet hall. That's awesome. <laughs> so 
So these are all ones I just grabbed off the internet. This is how Sukkot is celebrated today in Jerusalem with a wide range of these different tabernacles or tents to remind themselves as a people, this is what our ancestors live like. Now, I want you to catch this. Back in December, we took on the first 17 verses of John, or 18 verses of John chapter 1, just kind of using that as a Christmas series. But we read something back then in that December series that now as we look at the Feast of Tabernacles and we're understanding a little bit more of what it is, when we go back and read John 1.14, we're going to read something that's going to remind us of what the Jewish mind picked up on that we read right over the top. Look at John 1.14 again. The word became flesh. The second member of the triune God became something he had not yet been. He put on flesh, re retaining his deity, but watch, and made his dwelling among us, literally pitched his tent among us, made his tabernacle among men, among women, among humanity. That's what the Jewish mind reading John 1 would have picked up on. Jesus lived in a tent, as it were. He lived in the tabernacle of this world and made his dwelling among us. Now, the only other times that this word tabernacle comes up in the New Testament are all in the book of Revelation. And to me, one of my favorite passages, apart from this symbol, is where this symbol shows up again, this idea. Revelation 21.3 and I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place, God's tabernacle, God's tent is now among the people. He will dwell with them. He will pitch his tent among us and watch what will happen. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I love the Feast of Tabernacles. I love the sim symbols and the imagery. I love the physicality of living in this now but not yet state. But I love how Revelation resolves the whole thing and reminds us that God will make his dwelling among us. We will be with him forever. He will be our God and we will be his people. Yay, God. That is good news, and that's what this festival was to remind the people of. So there's so much significance in what we'll see as we walk through John's gospel, John 7 in particular, we'll see more allusions to this, but we'll just kind of put a marker there for now. Here's what maybe is part of the greatest significance of what we just read at the beginning of John 7, was the posture of his own brothers. Remember this verse, for even his own brothers did not believe him. John making commentary there and just making it really clear, in case you're not understanding the language of this conversation, Jesus' own brothers didn't even believe in who he was. I just want you to do this for a second. We talk about sometimes trying to get into the sandals of people in the first century. Try to think about what it was like growing up with Jesus as your big brother for just a second. And there had to be so many dynamics about that that were awesome and so many that were just a little weird. Why? He never hit you when he was mad. He, he never stole or lied to his parents or to anyone else. But watch this. It's not just an emphasis on what Jesus didn't do. Listen to what he did. He encouraged you. What seven-year-old does that? He loved you. So don't just go to your brain about what Jesus didn't do because he was sinless. Think of who he, he was and what he did. And you would think that the sinless Jesus 
Having grown up under the same roof of him, I know would have caused tensions. I know would have caused jealousies. But at the same time, his sinless character lived out over 30 plus years. You would think his brothers at the least would go, there's something other about you. But they didn't believe his own claim to who he said he was and what that otherness meant. Now, we know that wouldn't always be the case. What we understand in Scripture is that at least two of Jesus' brothers did respond, not just in faith, but in leadership. James, whose name is born in the letter later on in your New Testament, James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And in Acts 15, plays a pivotal role about how the church was going to move forward no longer as Jewish, a Jewish sect, but instead a church, a gospel for the nations. Jude, whose name is born the second to last book in your New Testament, Jude was also another blood brother of Jesus. So we see that a couple of these brothers at least turned their tune. But notice not only their unbelief, notice that what Jesus is calling out is talking about his time. Meaning that in that conversation, though it must have broke Jesus' heart that they don't believe that he is who he says he is and they should be the most credible witnesses to his whole life. Understand that what he's calling out is the fact that his time, they don't understand timing. And the interesting thing is neither did Jesus' mother. Mary said, uh, he said a very similar thing to her back in John chapter 2, verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman. Verse 4, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So Jesus has this real clarity of timing. Timing for him in his ministry is incredibly significant. And he shares with his family who doesn't understand that timing is of the essence, that there is a real incredible significance. I was thinking about this this week. What was even Jesus' timing? What was so important? If nothing else, it was preparing his disciples to lead his church when he had left. So Jesus is doing things with great purpose and great intent. We'll see that while what we see in John about Jesus being so thoughtful of his timing, Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, would call this the set time. Galatians 4.4, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, watch, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. At just the right time, at the set time. So God is incredibly strategic, not just in the what, but in the when. And so we left off what we were reading that Jesus does, in fact, secretly make his way down up to Jerusalem. It's always an up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Number two in your notes, Jesus expects that when you examine what he said, you'll see he's from God. Jesus expects that when you examine what he has said, you'll see that he's from God. We continue in John 7, verse 12. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly, watch this, about him for fear of the leaders. Back to the religious leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So now Jesus is not just at the festival, but at the second half, he makes his way up to teach. The Jews there were amazed. And they asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? 
Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. So there's great division among the crowds about the character and the ways of Jesus. And I would say 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. Right? When people begin to read the words of Scripture, they read Jesus' teaching, his action, his parables, his miracles, the same thing tends to, hap- tends to happen. It's incredibly polarizing. There are those who run to him, like we read last week when Bill was teaching about Peter's confession, who said, you have the words of life. We're drawn to you. We're in. And then there are those who run from him in skepticism and criticism. And it's rare that you find anyone who lands somewhere in the middle. It's a a driving wedge, a reality that they are drawn to him or run from him. But note that the people didn't speak up. They didn't really have ongoing, at least public conversations. Watch, because they were afraid of the Jewish religious leaders. You'll see in a moment why this is so important when John made that previous point about the Jewish leaders wanting to kill him. So there's great tension in the city of Jerusalem about this country rabbi, this guy named Jesus from up north in Nazareth. The religious leaders, however, were amazed at the insight that Jesus had and the content he was sharing with the people. So, but we will see even in this conversation today, they want to write him off, but there was something about the truth, something about the clarity, something about the perspective with the way that Jesus taught that even those who were opposed to him, even his adversaries had to stop and take stock and go, where'd this guy learn this stuff? What rabbi did he teach under or learn under? What, what uh, educational system did he have? And the reality is they had known he was from Nazareth. They knew his father was a carpenter. What he'd been trained, apprenticed to do was work in the wood shop. So how does this guy who hasn't had the degree of teaching like us, how does he know these things? And Jesus replies, I, I didn't learn from a particular rabbi or a certain school but I was taught by the one who sent me. I was taught by my father. And the words I'm sharing with you are simply the words that he's given to me. Watch this. Note that Jesus is giving credit to his father. He's not making a public figure of himself. Case in point, what his brothers were talking about earlier, if you want to be someone big and famous, go down to the festival and just make yourself known. Jesus, when he's being confronted, how did you learn this stuff? He doesn't talk about himself. He talks about the Father. Because Jesus' intent was not to be famous. Jesus' intent was not to draw people to some sort of spectacle about him, but to continue to point them to the one who'd sent him in the first place. See what Jesus said next. He says, don't marvel at the level of insight or skill of my teaching, but understand why I speak at all. Look up on the screen. Here's what verse we just read. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Here's an important question for us today. What does choosing to do the will of God have to do with knowing who's giving Jesus these words to speak? 
And in order to know that, we just need to back up in what we looked at a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 6. Look at verse 38 related to those doing the will of God or what is the will of God. Verse 38, I have come down, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Now look at verse 40. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So catch this, Jesus didn't teach in order for the people to marvel at him. Jesus' interest wasn't to gain some kind of cult following about the amazing teacher that he was. Jesus' intent is that his teaching would lead to faith, would lead to belief, would lead to those who would say, Jesus, you are who we've been waiting for. And to those, he says, he will give eternal life. The Father sent him so that people would recognize he is Messiah and put their faith in him and follow him in belief. I have a simple question for you this morning. Can you be more interested in learning about the Bible than in following the Savior? And I'm going to tell you a resounding yes. Absolutely. And here's how it fleshes out. It's not to say that these two in any way are mutually exclusive. One of the primary ways we get to know our Savior better, we get to understand where our faith should be placed, is from the words of Scripture. However, we can pursue biblical knowledge in a manner that never translates itself to the, making a change in the way we live, to making a change in the way we think, to making a change in the way we love. And that's contrary to Scripture's purpose. Here's how you and I have seen it before. You see it in people um, who appreciate the Bible as literature, making a study of all of its genres, and even memorizing passages, but failing to follow its directives. You see it in people who are very interested in knowing the details and the facts and all this background information about a particular passage, but they're not interested in laying down their lives more to follow what Jesus is calling them to. You see it in people who can be wowed and skilled by, an ama or wowed by a skilled communicator and just be so blown away with what the Bible says about this, but walk out of that situation with no more change and transformation in their life. I want to be really clear today, before it looks like I'm wagging fingers at people, I would admit I have been each and every one of these at various times in my life. I have been so impressed with uh, the literature and the power of scripture. I've been impressed by the facts and the background stories to things. I've been impressed by the sense of, wow, I can't believe how great a God Jesus is, but yet it not translating to more and more faith and belief and following him. That's a problem. That's not the intent of biblical knowledge is to be interested. The intent of biblical knowledge is to be transformed. All along, I look back at my own story at times, and I see that I was claiming to want something deeper than I previously had, but I demonstrated at the end of the day that all I wanted was something more interesting than I had before. In your notes, the only thing deeper that you and I need is a deeper love for Jesus to pursue him, following him more closely today than we were yesterday. 
I will tell you, that is the only thing you and I need is a deeper growing love and desire to follow him more closely today than we did yesterday, because that will drive everything else. And it almost makes me wonder if Jesus's brothers were listening in on this conversation. It makes me wonder if they were recognizable in the crowd when he's talking about giving his father all of this credit and not wanting to make a public figure of himself and just kind of tacitly reminding them, you know, that's not what I'm about. Finally, today, number three, Jesus provides the essence and heart of the law that religious people miss. Jesus provides the essence and heart of the law that religious people people miss. We're in chapter 7, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? (laughs) Now that phrase comes like, what? What's going on here? You are demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So Jesus bringing up the law and the prophets, just kind of as he's walking this out about what his teaching is about and who it's from, that seems disconnected from where we left off before down into verse 17. But I think um, a commentator I've been using throughout this series is D.A. Carson, amazing communicator, author. This is what he had to say about that transition. It says in your notes, they have the law, talking about the Jewish religious leaders. Moses gave it to them and they delight in it. But like Paul, this passage insists that mere possession of the law cannot guarantee sanctity, cannot guarantee the sanctifying process. Ironically, it guarantees condemnation, just the opposite. Not one of you keeps the law. So Jesus is saying, you're a group of people who become very proud that you have these unique teachings from Yahweh through Moses, but the problem is they actually bring condemnation upon you because you can't keep them. They shouldn't be a source of pride. They should be a source of brokenness. And then he calls them out on this idea of them wanting to kill him. Now, they're going to deny their plotting. They kind of, the religious leaders sink into the crowd, and it's the crowd who shouts back, not only are you crazy, but they shout back, I think you're demon-possessed. Now, I want you to catch the gravity of what we're talking about. Just, Just sink into this for a minute. Jesus has come up, he's on the steps, the stairs of the temple, and he's teaching the people. And then it begins a dialogue, and someone or someones from the crowd shout back that he's demon-possessed. You need to understand the gravity of that kind of criticism is that they are saying to the one-of-a-kind, unique son of God, the reason you have the ability to do what you do, to say what you say, to perform the miracles you perform, is by the power of Satan. There could be no bigger mistake. In the book of Matthew, this same kind of concept happens, but it's from the Jewish religious leaders. And they say it's by the power of Beelzebub, it's by the power of the Lord of the flies, it's by the power of Satan that Jesus is able to cast out demons. And Jesus goes on to talk about that doesn't make any sense. A house divided of its, by itself can't stand. But he goes on to say, man, there are a lot of things you can do that can be forgiven. 
a man ascribing to the Son of God that his power to do what he does is through the power of Satan, that's something off the charts. And the rest of the book of Matthew, that chapter 12 becomes a hinge. And the rest of the way through, when you read that gospel account of Jesus' life and teaching, is you're going to read about religious leaders who just become more and more emboldened, more and more entrenched. There is only one way forward. He has to go. So this is a really significant thing that this group of people has said. Jesus connects what's going on back to a miracle that we read that he performed back in John chapter 5 with the man who had been uh, unable to walk for nearly four decades at the pools of Bethsaida. And at first, notice his logic. Notice just the clarity of how he's talking. How can you have the perspective that it's okay, you have to keep and maintain the law, you have to do, quote, work, in order to circumcise a child on the correct day after his birth, and if that lands on the Sabbath, we break the law to do it. How can you maintain that logic? But when I heal a whole man who hadn't walked in nearly 40 years, you come after me. And Jesus challenges the logic. He challenges the thought process that they've completely missed the point. But notice the other aspect that Jesus is drawing them toward. Moses, really the patriarchs, gave you this law, but one greater than Moses is here now, whose miracles should inspire awe and obedience and a sense of response to his authority. Look in your notes. Moses was a servant of Yahweh. Jesus is his son. This is the thing that Jesus is drawing them to. What you're missing is the person that you're going to go back to and say is this person who gave you the law. He was a servant of God. The son is here among you and you're not listening. You're not paying attention. You're not seeing what I do and realizing God is among us. He has pitched his tent among us. We need to respond in faith and obedience. Jesus exposes the foolish thinking of the religious leaders and he turns their criticisms back on them, sharing the essence of the law, that it was never meant to be used to control people, but as a means of grace and as a means of identifying how much we needed saving. Back to that whole brokenness. Man, that's what the law should have evidenced in people is look at, not a look at me and look at all the things I keep, but man, look at me and look at all the ways I fail. God, I need something beyond the Band-Aid of offerings and sacrifices, I need atonement. And see how Jesus follows up the folly of their thinking. Look at this verse again. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Stop judging from mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Take in the totality of what you're seeing, of what you're hearing, and put that up against the heart of God and ask the question, who is among us? How are we missing what he's come to bring? Judge correctly. I was thinking about a nine-volt battery, of all things. Why on earth would I think of a nine-volt battery? And I think of this nine-volt battery and to the appearance, I know you can't see it well from there, but it appears very much a normal nine-volt battery. I know some of us leave things. I mean, I never do this. I'm talking about other people. But you leave batteries and things for too long, and the acid kind of starts creeping out, and all that gross stuff. You realize, I think my battery's old. But this doesn't have any of that. 
This looks great, usable, ready to go. How do I know, judging by beyond mere appearance, how do I know that this battery is no longer good? Because my fire detector at 1.40 in the morning on Saturday morning started chirping. <laughs> There's evidence beyond how it looks to the reality of how it works. And then one step further, because you got to troubleshoot, you know, it's usually that but probably the best invention on the planet for people like me who don't understand a lot is a battery tester. And I take my battery and I put it up against and it's weak. And I take a new nine volt out of the thing and I put it in my fire alarm and there's no more chirping. <laughs> Praise the Lord at 1.40 in the morning. Right, because that's when it always happens, right? It never happens at two in the afternoon. Stop judging by mere appearances. See the evidence. Think through the lenses that God has given you, a heart that is surrendered to the Spirit, a head that's transformed by the words of Scripture. That's what we need. That's what we need as a church to move forward. I really appreciate Thad today sharing with you the, the reality of what an important month this next month of June is. And he talked about three different meetings that are coming. As we've talked as an elder board, we really believe that there's a lot going on in the month of June that we really as a church family need to pay attention to. I was up at a conference earlier in May, and it just seemed as though the Lord made himself very clear to me about something I needed to do. I've taken very seriously, I didn't realize how important they would be. But I took very seriously, even last year, about this time in June, the words from Ephesians 4 were just really coming to the surface in my life. And especially, I think it's verse 3, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I was thinking about that as I was at this conference, and I realized, Todd, are you making every effort? And I realized that there was more that I could do, more that I need to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to set aside the Gospel of John for a month. We'll come back to it. The good thing is John's not going anywhere. But we're going to insert a, a series that I believe is really timely. You can see the graphic up on the screen. It's called At the Crossroads. And I really believe that Trinity Church is at a crossroads from de for decisions that we need to be making about our present and our future. And we're going to focus four weeks in the month of June about how we've gotten here and how we move forward and how we do that together, not separated. And I'll explain a little bit more significance of the graphic to you next week when we come together. But I want to encourage you, and I know June is a month we start taking off and vacations, and I get that. But as much as you can be here, even if you're away on a Sunday, man, watch online during the week and stay tracking with us in the month of June. Because we really want to see things through a shared lens. God, what do you want to say to us as a church? And how do we move forward together? For today, for us, for now, here's our now what statement for this week. Would we be a people who, when it comes to making decisions and judgments, we evaluate people and circumstances with a head that is transformed by Scripture and a heart that is surrendered to the Spirit? Let me pray. Father, we come before you today as a people that are so grateful for your word, so grateful for just being able to draw closer and know more about this person, this God-man Jesus. And our study in John has just elicited that week over week, we're just getting to know the Savior better. 
And I thank you even for this interchange today that just reminds us, I, I confess, God, the times when I have been more interested in just the, the way something might be said or more interested in, in the facts and the circumstances around something or more interested even in being wowed by a dynamic communicator only to walk away with no change, with no transformation in my life. Father, your word's purpose is not that to be interested. Your word's purpose is to be transformed. Would you be transforming us through the truths of scripture, God, through the indwelling power of your spirit, through the way that we as a community come together and talk and share and encourage one another? God, would, would we be that people who look to you when we don't know what to do? If you're here today and as we're talking about this God-man Jesus, and as we're talking about the reality of, of why he taught was for the purpose of fo people following in faith and belief. And if you're here today and you've never put your trust, your confidence in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for you, I have just amazing news for you today is that you can, even before you leave this place. Would you A, admit, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior? Would you B, believe Believe that Jesus, who we've talked about today, we said it earlier, he did. He lived a sinless life. We can't even fathom that. He died a sacrificial death at the cross. And he was raised supernaturally from the grave, the empty tomb. And so what Jesus believed that what he did 2,000 years ago covers, atones for your sin today. See is choose. Choose to put your faith, your confidence, your trust in what Jesus has accomplished for you and live forward living a life following his pattern. Father, we love you. Would we be a people this week who seek to be transformed by your word? And God, grow us that we would be a people who evaluate things rightly from scripture and through the indwelling power of your spirit. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.